Let's pray before we get started. And let me ask you to pray for me this week. I've got uh, two trips this week. I'm going to go down Thursday and speak at the Calvary Chapel East Coast Youth Pastors Conference down in Fort Lauderdale. And then I'm going to fly up to Indianapolis and do a men's retreat for Calvary Chapel up there. So if you'll keep me in your prayers this week, I'd greatly appreciate it. I'm going to be doing a little traveling. I'm going to be away from home. I'm going to be missing my family. I'm going to be missing you guys. And I'm just hoping God will uh, take what I have to say and, and use it in a great way. So if you'd pray for me, I'd appreciate it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our Bible study tonight. Father, thank you for your goodness toward us, Lord. We're always amazed when we think of your grace and your love for us, Lord. We thank you for this morning's message, Lord, for the encouragement it brought to us. Lord, to think that you can take the wasted years, the set-aside opportunities, the untapped potentials of our lives, and you can work abundantly to help us, Lord, to not only achieve those things that we, we might have, but to do even above and beyond that in our lives, Lord. We're so amazed. And we ask tonight, Lord, that you speak to us as we study your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul Bear Bryant was the legendary coach for the University of Alabama, considered one of the greatest football coaches of all time. But at his practices, most of the coaching was done by the assistants who were on the field, playbooks in hand. The bear did his coaching from an observation tower that stood above the practice field. Only on occasion, when he saw a mistake being made on the field, would he pick up his bullhorn and shout down instructions to the players and coaches on the field. In a sense, this is what God did in the Old Testament. Often God's own field assistants, the priests and the Levites and the kings, they would grow corrupt. They would fail to do their job. They would refuse to follow the playbook, God's Word. And so God would take up His bullhorn and shout down instructions. The prophets were God's bullhorn. Tonight we look at two of the minor prophets with a major message, Joel and Amos. All we know for sure about the prophet Joel is what we learn from his introduction in verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. There's no mention of when he wrote, no mention of who he was, no mention of what he did. From the book's content, though, we assume that Joel was written in the reign of Joash around the year 830 B.C., which would make Joel the first of the writing prophets. Joel was God's bullhorn to the southern kingdom, the nation Judah, He was a contemporary of prophets to the north, Obadiah and Elisha. In the Chinese language, words are formed by the linking together of symbols. Take, for example, the Chinese word for crisis. It's the combination of the symbols of two words, danger and opportunity. For a crisis is both. It's a combination of danger and an opportunity. At the time of Joel, the nation Judah was facing a true crisis. In a time before Black Flag and the Orkin Man and all the pesticides you can buy at Home Depot, a plague of locusts had swept across the southern kingdom. 
A locust is a dull yellow, reddish-colored, plump grasshopper, about three inches long. Get up close to a locust, and the face of the locust actually resembles that of a horse. Locusts are best known for their ferocious appetites. They consume every green leaf in sight. The locusts have a nickname. They're called hunger incarnate. At the turn of this last century, there was a plague of locusts that swept across Israel and Syria for a total of five long months. During that time, scientists were able to document the spread of the locusts and their incredible devastation. The mother bug, we're told, dug four-inch holes and laid 100 eggs in each hole. In a single square meter of soil, 70,000 eggs incubated. When they hatched, of course, billions of locusts were unleashed on the land. Swarms so thick that they blanketed out the sunshine. The swarms of locusts moved at 400 to 600 feet a day, consuming and devouring every scrap of vegetation in their way. And this was the crisis facing the nation Judah. At best, this scourge could cripple the nation's economy for generations to come. At worst, their very survival was at stake. Trust me, a plague of locusts would be something that would really bug you. But enter Joel, the prophet, with the word of God. You see, this was a true crisis. Yes, it was a danger, but it was also a grand opportunity. It was an opportunity for them to trust God, to see his faithfulness. It was an opportunity to add muscle to their faith. God wanted to prove himself to Israel and to teach them that he could be trusted Hey, God does allow trials and difficulties in our lives, even swarms of locusts, to show us that we can lean on Him. Guys, when a difficulty arises, when a hardship comes your way, realize this is a test. It's only a test. God is testing your faith as He was the nation Judah. Verse 2 refers to the locusts as an unprecedented plague in the nation's history. Joel asks, Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Never before had the nation faced a crisis of this magnitude. Verse 4 describes the total devastation of these locusts. What the chewing locusts left, the swarming locusts is eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the crawling locusts is eaten. And what the crawling locusts left, the consuming locusts has eaten. The four types of locusts mentioned by Joel probably refer to the four stages of a locust's development. The chewing locusts are the babies. They just can kind of gnaw at you, you know. The swarming locusts were the mothers who multiply in great numbers. The crawling locusts were those locusts who had underdeveloped wings that were allowed to hop, and they did, but they couldn't yet fly. The consuming locusts, though, they were the ferocious eaters. They were the adults. And they were the ones that did the most extensive damage. Verse 5 cries out, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. Now, interestingly enough, here is the only sin mentioned in the book of Joel, the sin of drunkenness. 
Evidently, idolatry was not as big an issue in the days of Joel as was debauchery and drunkenness. It was John Fielding who once described alcohol as the liquid fire by which men drink their hell beforehand. And if you have ever had close, intimate, up-close contact with the life of an alcoholic, then you won't consider Fielding's description an exaggeration. Understand, alcoholism may be a disease, but drunkenness is a sin. I do believe that there are some people who are chemically predisposed to a addiction to alcohol. It is genetic. It is biological. But once that person realizes their makeup, then they need to know and be aware that they're always one drink away from a drunk. There is an old AA saying, and I think it's true. Once you become a pickle, you can never become a cucumber. If you're an alcoholic, you can't drink sociably. You can't have one drink. You're always one drink away from a drunk. That's why alcoholism is a disease. Whereas drunkenness is a sin. An alcoholic should know that he can't handle the booze. It's impossible for him to go out and drink a few beers with the boys. It always becomes a few more and a few more and a few more. He's always one drink away from falling off the wagon. And that's why it's a sin for that alcoholic to take that one drink. You see, a non-alcoholic is free to have a glass of wine with their meal. But an alco- for an alcoholic, it's a sin to drink a single drop. You may be a person predisposed to alcoholism, but with the grace of God and with a repentant attitude and with the determination not to take that first drink, then you'll never get drunk and you can walk in victory. In verse 6, the plague of locusts is compared to an invading army. These locusts are small bugs but they have teeth like a lion, we're told. They ravage the land and the vegetation. Verse 12 describes the devastation. The vine has dried up and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Can you imagine the devastation of this plague? And how should the people respond to this? How would you respond if this kind of trouble struck in your life when your faith was tested? Verse 14 gives us the answer. He tells them, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of your God and cry out to the Lord. If you're taking notes, jot this down. There's three things you need to do when trouble strikes. First, pull back from the trial. Pull back. Step back from it a moment. Create some space and some separation. He says here, go into the house of the Lord. Seek the Lord. Go into the Lord's house. Get his perspective, his mind on the thing. Step back. Second point, though, is to pull together. 
Consecrate a fast. Call together a sacred assembly. He's saying, gather other believers together to help support you in prayer, to glean from their perspective. Increase your own understanding. So pull together. The third step is to pull apart from the world. He says, consecrate a fast. In other words, cut out food or entertainment or sports or whatever it is that might be preoccupying your time and get alone with the Lord. Pull apart to seek the Lord. When trouble strikes, remember those three steps. They'll come in handy. Pull back. Pull together. Pull apart and seek the Lord. In verse 15, Joel shouts out, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is mentioned five times in the book of Joel. It marks God's intervention in the affairs of men. It's associated, too, with the cataclysmic events of God's judgment, both past judgments and future judgments. My dad had an unusual method for teaching junior high boys in Sunday school. For the first 15 minutes or so of class, he would allow us to talk about whatever we wanted. Baseball, girls, school, it didn't matter to him. He just gave us time to chew the fat. But as the conversation died down, my dad would always say, Now, boys, I've been quiet while you've talked, and now it's time for you to be quiet while I talk. And then he'd present his lesson, and it was always a pretty effective method. In a sense, this is God's attitude in the world today. God is always at work behind the scenes, but on the world stage, right now, He is giving man His say. For the most part, godless men are running the show. (laughs) Just read the newspaper. But on occasion, God will shut man up. He'll silence all human voices with an event that forces them to listen. This was the effect of this plague of locusts on the nation of Judah. In the Bible, the term, the day of the Lord, also has special relevance to the last days. At the end of the age, God too will break up man's party and execute his will on the earth. The day of the Lord will begin with the rapture of the church, followed by the great tribulation and its judgments. Then it will climax, of course, with the second coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the kingdom age. God will have the final word. Today is the day of man, but understand the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is also like other Hebrew days. You remember back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 5, there it reads, And the evening and the morning were the first day. Notice the Hebrew day is reckoned differently than our day. Our days begin with daybreak and end with nightfall. In other words, the day comes first and then the night. But the Hebrews began their days in the dark and they ended in the light. And so it is with the day of the Lord. It begins with trouble for Israel. It is a dark day in the life of God's people. The plague of the locusts in the days of Joel was just a foreshadowing of the terrible devastations that will occur in the end times, in the great tribulation. Israel will begin the day of the Lord, the final day, in the dark. 
And only at the end of that day will they see the light of Jesus Christ and embrace His kingdom. Chapter 2 sounds the alarm. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Wow. Thank you. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Here again is an unprecedented event. It's a threat of incredible proportion. It's like no one's ever seen before, he says. I believe that in chapter 2, Joel's prophecy begins to look beyond the local situation to the end times. He begins to see the armies of the world that will sweep into Israel for the final climactic battle. You know it as the Battle of Armageddon. Remember, prophecy tends to have a dual fulfillment. There's always a long-range fulfillment and a short-range fulfillment. In the short run, Joel is describing this plague of locusts that invaded ancient Israel. But there is also a future event in view. And that's the war that will end all wars, the Battle of Armageddon. These dark clouds of chapter 2 are both the invasion of the locusts and this coming army. Verses 4 and 5 refer to the appearance of this army. Its, it's soldiers, we're told, look like horses, swift I can't even say it. Swift steeds. And it sounds like chariots in battle formation as you read through the verses. Notice, too, they're spewing out flaming fire. In a sense, the imagery does fit that of a locust. The face of a locust resembles a horse. Locusts do leap. The Italian word locust means little horse. But in another sense, as you read through this description, again, it goes far beyond a plague of locusts. When does a locust shoot out flaming fire? And yet, think about it. If a 9th century B.C. Hebrew prophet were to get a glimpse of the end times, were to see in a vision a modern battle, how would he describe it? It wouldn't surprise us if he did use idioms that were familiar to him, if he did talk about it in terms of swarming locusts. It's interesting, especially if he had just been through that kind of plague himself. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, the apostle John uses this same imagery as the prophet Joel. The first four judgments or four seals, remember, of the great tribulation are called the four horsemen. The fifth trumpet judgment is a plague of demonic locusts coming out of hell. Revelation 9 verse 7 describes them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. It's all very similar to Joel's description here. The last days definitely come into view in verses 10 and 11 of the chapter. We're told the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Nothing in ancient history conforms to that description that Joel is here predicting. In the middle of the chapter, 
Joel calls for Israel to repent and to turn to the Lord. He says in verse 13, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Isn't that wonderful? God wants to forgive, not judge. In verse 20, God assures a future Israel that when she repents, He will turn back the northern army. You remember in Daniel 11, we're told that the Antichrist army will invade the land from the north. And when the Jews repent, Jesus will return and defend the land of Israel. Verses 21 through 32 here paint an eloquent picture of how God will restore Israel both immediately and in the future, in Joel's day and in the kingdom age. First, he'll restore, we're told, the autumn and spring rains. You see, unlike Egypt, which had the security of a mighty river flowing through its borders, a secure, a permanent water supply, Israel depended on the rain. Whenever God wanted to get Israel's attention, (laughs) it was easy. He just stopped the rain. Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir once complained, She said, imagine, Moses led all our people through the wilderness for 40 years and brought them to the only place in this area that has no oil. She bemoaned the nation's lack of natural resources. But God put them in a land with no water and with no oil to teach them faith, to teach them how to trust in Him. Both the plague of locusts and the great tribulation are God's way of testing Israel's faith. And when the test is over, God will water the land and make it fruitful. Joel chapter 2 verse 25 is one of my favorite verses. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. God is able to overcome the consequences of the sin in our lives and restore to us wasted years and untapped potentials, and neglected talents, and lost opportunities. He can make up for poor choices, in youthful foolishness, in the area of marriage, in our dealings with our kids, in our career, in our ministry. You might be looking back on a long list of regrets tonight, but if you'll give God the rest of your life, He'll produce in your life a bumper crop of blessing that will more than make up for your failures. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 is the verse quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the newly formed church. In Acts chapter 2 verse 16, Peter says to the interested onlookers, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. The Holy Spirit had just come upon those believers. They had spoken with tongues. They had praised the Lord. They were now bold witnesses for Jesus. And he says, this was all spoken of by the prophet Joel. And here's the verse, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. But here's an interesting point. The, the events that took place on Pentecost were the what spoken of by Joel. But it wasn't the when spoken of by Joel. For here, Joel is describing not the day of Pentecost, but he's describing the day of the Lord. 
the end of the age. He looks forward to a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Israel when they ultimately embrace Jesus as their Messiah. But that's still future. For now, God is pouring out His Spirit in the same manner on the church. We are experiencing this outpouring of spiritual power. The Holy Spirit communicates supernaturally with us. It's the what that Joel's talked about, but it's just not the when. So Peter was right when he says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Verses 30 and 32 detail the signs and wonders that occur prior to the second coming of Jesus. The earth will be rocked off its foundation with cataclysmic upheavals. The world will be judged. The nation Israel will be delivered. You can read all about this in the book of Revelation as well. Chapter 3 discusses the aftermath of the Lord's return. He'll regather the Jews to their ancient homeland. And he'll gather together the nations of the earth in the valley of Jehoshaphat. According to tradition, this valley of Jehoshaphat was the Kidron Valley which was the valley that runs east and southeast of the Temple Mount. And here in this valley, God is going to judge the nations of the earth when he returns. Joel envisions the scene in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Never again, we're told, will an army pass through the borders of Israel. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus promised, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. This is what is happening here in Joel chapter 3. Jesus has returned, and he is judging the nations of the earth in the valley of decision. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 25, and he tells us how those judgments will be made, how he will divide the sheep from the goats. He says, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Who are Jesus' brethren? Jesus was a Jew. So his brethren are the nation Israel. And God will judge the nations of the earth by how they treated his people Israel. Remember, that's what he told Abraham. When he separated him from the Gentiles and called him to himself, he said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And God is consistent down through the ages. And in the valley of decision at the end of the age, he will judge the nations of the earth by how they treated his people Israel. That's why we need to vote for leaders who understand the importance of the nation Israel and God's plan. We need to vote for leaders who understand that one day God will judge America to a large degree based on our policies toward Israel. When Jesus returns, he'll usher in an age of global peace. 
In verse 10 of chapter 3, Jesus commands the men of war to beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Instruments of war will become implements of peace. It's interesting, this verse is engraved over the entrance to the United Nations building in New York City. Today, though, it's only a dream. It won't become a reality until Jesus returns. After Jesus does return, he establishes his kingdom, of which Israel becomes its centerpiece. The Lord will forgive and prosper his people. Verse 18 expresses it best. The mountains will drip with new wine. The hills flow with milk. What a wonderful description of prosperity. And verse 20 and 21 conclude, Judah shall abide forever, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And that's the book of Joel. During the middle of the 8th century B.C., 100 years before the prophet Joel, a flurry of prophets shouted God's word to both the northern and southern kingdoms. It was a barrage of prophetic activity. To the nation Judah, God sent the prophets Isaiah and Micah. And to the northern kingdom of Israel, he sent Hosea, Jonah, and a man named Amos. Amos introduces both himself and his prophecy in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, this was quite a quake. 250 years later, we'll discover that Zechariah was still talking about it in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. It was probably associated with God's judgment on King Uzziah when he disobeyed the law and assumed the role of priest. You remember God struck him with leprosy, and apparently along with it, a killer quake rocked the capital city of Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the quake was so strong that it altered much of the topography of the city of Jerusalem. The first two chapters of Amos, written two years before this quake in 758 B.C., mention fire and brimstone-type judgments on Israel's neighbors, And it's possible that this colossal earthquake produced lightning storms and prairie fires that ended up in the next few years fulfilling Amos' prophecies. I love how Amos begins in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion. The voice of God is not like the chirp of a bird or a squeak of a mouse. (laughs) It's like a lion's roar. A note from where God roars, from Zion. Or from Jerusalem. You remember when the nation split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom continued to come to the temple there in Jerusalem. But the northern kingdom came up with their alternative temple. They began to worship in Bethel and in Dan. They erected idols before which they worshipped. But the presence of God... Remained in Jerusalem. The Lord roars from Zion, Amos tells them. The idolatrous Samaritans should have repented of their sin. They should have reunited with the priests in Jerusalem and worshipped the true God in the right way in his temple. 
They need to repent of their sin. They need to return to the temple in Jerusalem. In chapters 1 and 2, Amos predicts judgment on Israel's neighbors. Damascus and the the Assyrians, Gaza and the Philistines, Tyre and the Sidonians, Edom, Ammon, Moab. And in case you accuse God of bias, he also judges his own people in these chapters, Judah and Israel. And it's interesting the phraseology he opens up with his oracles. Each time he judges these nations, he says, For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. In baseball lingo, we say, three strikes and you're out. Here, apparently, God gave these nations four strikes. (laughs) In Amos chapter 2, verse 4, God judges Judah because... She despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. You see, Israel, the northern kingdom, rejected the Lord himself and turned to idols. The southern kingdom, though, they despised the law of the Lord and didn't keep his commandments. Judah and Israel's sin become even more sinister in light of all the ways that God had blessed the Hebrew nation. He had driven out the Amorites before them. He had conquered the Egyptians. He had raised up prophets and Nazarites to warn the people. But sadly, both Judah and Israel had tried to subvert the men that God had sent to warn them. In chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says to both Hebrew nations, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You remember a few years ago, American Express used a motto, membership has its privileges. And indeed it does. But if you ring up a bunch of charges on your American Express card, you'll also discover that membership has its responsibilities too. God chose the Hebrews to be his special people. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. What an honor. What a privilege. And they enjoyed that privilege. The problem, though, is that they failed to accept the responsibilities of that relationship. They sinned perpetually against God in His grace. They were punished over and over. One Jewish historian facetiously prayed, Lord, thank you for choosing us as your chosen people, but now how about choosing someone else for a while? You see, they were punished because they didn't live up to the responsibilities of being his chosen people. They loved the privileges, but they ignored the responsibilities. And guys, let's not miss the obvious lesson. For in Christ Jesus, you and I are also God's chosen people. And with that exalted position comes incredible spiritual blessings. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a privilege. But along with that privilege comes some responsibilities. And so let's not just take advantage of the blessings. Let's also be faithful to the Lord. Verse 3 is a key verse. Can two walk together 
unless they are agreed. For two people to walk together, whether they be a husband and wife, close friends, church members, business partners, teammates, co-workers, there needs to be a strong mutual agreement. It's hard to be united with someone. It's hard to carry on a pursuit with someone unless there's a strong mutual agreement between the two of you. There has to be a shared vision. There needs to be a common purpose. There needs to be compatible motive and means. There needs to be a mutual respect. You need to keep this verse in mind when you go to select a mate, when you go to join a church, when you enter into a business relationship. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Amos chapter 3 verse 7 tells us, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. Thousands of years ago, God spoke through the Hebrew prophets and He laid out in detail His plan for the end of the age. And it always blows my mind when I see biblical prophecies coming about in our day. It's just amazing. And it's proof again of Amos 3 verse 7 that God does reveal His secrets to the prophets in advance. The rest of chapter 3 envisions the judgment that occurred 36 years later when the Assyrian army destroyed Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel. I read recently of an FBI agent who was on assignment who decided to take a shortcut to save some time, and he ignored the do not enter sign. After all, he was an FBI agent. What he didn't count on was driving his government car into six inches of freshly poured cement. You know, you and I can ignore God's warning signs. You and I can think we have a special, you know, agreement with God that that some of the things that apply to others don't necessarily apply to us. And we can drive past some warning signs. We can drive through some barricades. But understand, you do it to your own peril. In the end, there will be consequences. Chapter 4 begins with a word to the women of Israel. Once in Sunday school, the children were asked if they knew the story of Adam and Eve. And one little girl raised her hand and she said, Yes, I know that story. First, God made the man. Then he looked at him and said, I think I can do better than that. And so he created the woman. Ladies, that's probably what you've always believed as well, too. So, And you know, there may be some real truth to that statement. For generally speaking, I have found that women tend to be stronger morally and deeper spiritually than men. It's more difficult to corrupt a woman than it is a man, at least so it seems. And that's why when a society's women folk no longer stand for what's good and godly, wholesome and righteous, then that society is in serious decline. I'm sure you've heard the expression, Jewish princess. It's a young Jewish girl who lives an extravagant, luxurious lifestyle that's funded by a rich daddy. All she cares about is herself. She's stuck up and greedy and selfish, which was the description of the women of Samaria. They became cruel. They became greedy. The commoners were dying of thirst and starvation while they got drunk on their wine as they sat in their penthouses. 
getting sauced. They were grazing while the poor were dying. And that's why in chapter 4, verse 1, Amos refers to them by the unflattering title, cows of Bashan. (laughs) You cows of Bashan. Verses 2 and 3 describe how God will break up their party. The barbaric Assyrians will place fish hooks in their painted lips and lead these women into captivity. In verse 6, God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. At first, that sounds like a good thing. Maybe a free trip to the hygienist. But cleanness of teeth is another term for famine. In other words, the cities of Israel didn't have enough food to even get their teeth dirty. They didn't even need to brush their teeth. There was no food. Verse 7 through the end of the chapter describe the other plagues that God brings upon Israel. Drought, pestilence, locust, disease, fire. And yet after each blight, the Lord draws the conclusion, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Verse 12. Thunders, ominous words. Catch verse 12. Don't miss it. Amos says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Wow. Prepare to meet your God. Let me ask you, are you prepared tonight to meet your God? C.S. Lewis describes what we're all in for. The nanosecond after we die. Here's what's going to happen. The split second after you die. There will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will be no time for choosing It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Prepare to meet your God. In chapter 5, verse 4, the Lord calls out to Israel, Seek me and live. God cautions the nation not to turn to others for help. He made the stars and put them in their orbits. He causes the sea to flood its borders. He brings to ruin the strong man who lives in rebellion. There is no loophole. There is no escaping God's judgment. The only salvation is to humble yourself before God, repent of your sin, and seek God and live, Amos tells us. Novelist J.R. Tolkien once wrote, It does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live next door to him. If you live next door to a fire-breathing dragon, it would have to be considered, wouldn't it? You'd have to watch when you went out to mow your lawn. or (laughs) You'd have to be careful about parking in front of his house. I mean, it would always be something there in the back of your mind. It would be a consideration, no doubt about it. Ignore that fire-breathing dragon, and you could get burned. Well, God is also a fire-breather. He's like a dragon in many senses. He, He is, in a sense, a monster. 
He's huge. He's loving. He's kind. But God demands His way. God is strong. He's mighty. And He's not something that can be ignored. God forces us to consider Him. He lives in our neighborhood. You can't ignore Him. You can't pretend that He doesn't exist. You best factor Him into your plans or else. Or else you too are going to get burned. The only way to live is to seek the Lord. Verses 11 through 13 tell us that the officials of Israel were guilty of mistreating the poor, overtaxing their citizens, subverting justice and taking bribes. Their politicians were corrupt. Verse 18 reminds the people that if they refuse to turn to the Lord, the day of the Lord will be a dark day. Rather than salvation, there will be wailing in the streets. Verse 20 tells us that you can't run from God. Do you know that? I hope you do. You can't run from God. He says, flee the lion and the bear will eat you. Flee the bear and the serpent will bite you. You can't escape God's judgment. You need to seek the Lord and live. Joe Lewis may have been the greatest boxer of all time. During his reign as champ, he fought a challenger by the name of Billy Kahn. Billy had quick feet. He could really move. And Billy's strategy was always to stay away from his opponent's reach. Just stay out of his reach. Let him wear himself down. But when Joe, Joe Lewis was asked how he would fare against Billy Kahn if he thought he could really beat him, old Joe Lewis replied, He can run, but he can't hide. <laughs> That's now become a very famous saying. And neither can you hide from the heavy weight of the universe. Remember the words of Amos, prepare to meet your God. In chapter 5, verse 21 through 23, God makes a strong statement concerning his people Israel. We should read these verses before we come to church on Sunday, before the day before Christmas, the day before Easter, the day before Thanksgiving, the day before our holidays. It speaks to them. God says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Why? Because their hearts were far from Him. Hey, their church services, their holiday celebrations, their financial offerings, their praise songs were all worthless to God. God is unimpressed with our prayers and our songs and our service if our hearts are AWOL, if our hearts aren't in it. If we don't mean what we say and what we sing, hypocrisy is the one thing that God hates. You know, Jesus put up with a lot, but the one thing he had no tolerance for was for the hypocrite. Verse 24 is what God is after. Not hollow performances and empty praise, but he says, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Chapter 6 could double as a word of warning to the United States of America. Verse 1 warns, 
Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who've got it made. You know, prosperity is a blessing, but it can also be a blight. It can lull you to sleep. It can cause a false sense of security. You know, we assume that God's blessing means God's approval. But that's not necessarily so. And just because God chooses to bless us today doesn't mean that our situation can't change overnight. Look at verse 3. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom. Oh, things look good now. You know, the day of doom, oh, that, that's way off into the future. But hey, don't. Well, how do you know that? How do you know the day of doom is not just around the corner? God delivered Israel. But only after she repented of her sin and turned back to Him. Let's not take His grace for granted. Let's live out our gratitude every single day. Intercession is a powerful tool. Prayer can avert judgment. Prayer can bring blessing. And twice Amos intercedes successfully for Israel. The prophet sees two visions in these next few verses, a swarm of locusts and a consuming fire. And both times he asks God to spare the nation. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, and then again in verse 5, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And both times we're told, so the Lord relented concerning this. God delivered Israel on account of Amos' prayer. But chapter 7, verse 7, brings the moment of truth. For now, Amos has another vision, his third vision in this chapter. And here he sees a construction worker's plumb line. You see, the plumb line was the ancient level. It was a weighted string that hung through the hole in a board. And it was used to determine if a wall was in plumb or if it was straight. If the string touched the board, it meant you had a crooked wall. Which reminds me of the riddle. A plump friend of mine once asked, he said, How do you know if a person is on the level? He patted his stomach and he said, Well, the bubble's right in the middle. God places the level against Israel and discovers that the nation is out of plumb. It's crooked. It's corrupt. It has to be torn down and rebuilt. Guys, as followers of Jesus, we need to be careful that we don't shift out of plumb. Jesus is our plumb line. And the question for every Christian is, are we growing more and more like Jesus? We need to put the plumb line up against every area of our lives. In this realm of my life, am I exhibiting the image and character of Jesus? Am I growing in His likeness? Am I living out His nature in my family life? With my friends, at work, in church? Am I in plumb? Or am I out of plumb? My plumb line is Jesus. We're told in verse 10, when Amaziah the priest hears Amos' predictions of an invading army, he goes to King Jeroboam and he accuses Amos of conspiracy to bring down the kingdom. He says, the land is not able to bear all his words. 
In fact, Amaziah confronts Amos there at Bethel. He banishes him from Israel. He says, get out of Dodge, man. We don't need you. But I love the response of the prophet Amos in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 7. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now here we get some background on Amos. Amos was a rancher by trade. He also tended sycamore fruit. So he was a rancher and a farmer. Remember chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that he was from the town of Tekoa. And understand, Tekoa is like being from Snellville. I mean, Tekoa was a hick town. A town with a single traffic light. It was a country village about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem, down in the Judean wilderness. Tekoa was the kind of place where... Dogs live under the front porch, where mailboxes are made out of old auto parts, where funeral homes have neon signs, where there's a tire swing in everyone's front yard, where children are named after good dogs, and where everyone in town knows how to milk a goat. That was Tekoa right there. This all meant that Amos wasn't a member of the professional clergy. (laughs) He'd never been to seminary. He had no formal training. He was just a good old country boy from down south that God had called to minister in the urban jungles of the northern kingdom. Amos wasn't a prophet for profit. He made his living from his ranch. He didn't view the ministry as a profession. He viewed it as a passion. It was a calling to him, never a career. Amos was an amateur I always want to be an amateur. I have ever since I understood the meaning of the word. It's a French word, and it means for the love of it. That was Amos. He served the Lord for the love of it. And we need more men like Amos today. Understand, Amos has nothing to lose here. That's my point. He's not worried about his rank in the local ministerial association. He's not up for some nice, cushy, high-paid job at denominational headquarters. He's not worried about the board firing him and him losing his salary. He doesn't have a salary. He doesn't even have a board. Amos' agenda is simple. God called me to prophesy. He said, go and prophesy to my people, Israel. Amos' agenda is one thing. Speak God's word and let the chips fall where they may. And that is exactly what he does in verse 17. Amaziah, remember, has just banished Amos from Bethel. But look what Amos in turn says. He pulls no punches. He lays it on the line. He says, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. You want to know anything else, buddy? (laughs) That's a mouthful. I think Amos shows us that when you've got nothing to lose, 
then you've got nothing to fear. When all you care about is the honor and glory of God, then you've got nothing to fear. In chapter 8, Amos sees a vision of ripened or summer fruit. It means that Israel too is ripe for judgment. In verse 2 he says, The end has come upon my people Israel. Verses 4 through 6 again list the sins for which God will judge these people. They've exploited the needy and poor. They've disrespected the Sabbath. Verse 5 says that they made the ephah small and the shekel large. The shekel was a coin. The ephah was a measurement of grain. In other words, they charged more for less. Sort of like stuffing a bag of potato chips with air. Don't you just hate that? You open that bag, you get three potato chips, and the thing looks so full. God judges people for that. <laughs> Verses 9 and 10 look beyond Amos' day and speaks of the last days. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. Serious judgments are yet to come. Verses 11 and 12 likewise speak of both then and now. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but hey, far worse, catch this, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And if you've moved around the country a lot lately and you've been looking for churches that teach the word of God, you will understand Amos's next statement. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. So many churches these days offer sermonettes for Christianettes. But where are the churches that are committed to the true exposition of Scripture? Taking the Bible seriously. Going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Really studying, not just from the Bible, but studying the Bible itself. Where are those churches? There is a famine in the land today. Not of bread, not of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. To me, the biggest indictment against today's church is the ignorance of the Scriptures among its members. There are churches today that believe the Bible... They will fight for its inspiration and its authority. Sadly, they just don't teach it. There is a famine. And notice its consequences in verse 13. In that day, the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Think of the sad, pathetic pictures we see on television of the starving tribes in Africa. You know, you, you can see those pictures in your mind, the shriveled, bony bodies, the sunken eyes, the protruding, swollen stomachs, people dying of starvation. But you know, if you could see the souls of the people around you, you would see similar pictures. For people today are starving spiritually. They're wasting away for lack of solid spiritual food. 
There is a famine in the land. And this is why we need to place as our top priority the hearing of the Word of God. In Amos chapter 9, the Lord shakes the doorposts of the temple. The temple will topple. The temple was the center of Judaism, but soon it will all come crumbling down. In Amos chapter 9 verse 1, God speaks again of the Assyrian invasion. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. And then in the succeeding verses, he shows how no matter where they run, God will track them down. He says, though they dig to hell, though they climb to heaven, though they hide at the bottom of the ocean, God will track them down. They won't escape God's judgment. It really is a sobering passage as you read through Amos chapter 9. The Lord sounds like Joe Lewis. You can run, but you can't hide. Verse 8 says that God will destroy the Hebrews, but not completely. He'll preserve a remnant with which he will start over. And these last verses speak of the last days. God makes six promises to the Hebrew people. In verse 9, he promises the purification of the people. He sifts them among the nations. And that's what God's been doing with the Jews for the last 2,000 years, sifting them like a sieve among the nations. Verse 11 promises the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. Some people believe that the reference here to the raising up of David's tabernacle refers to the rebuilding of the temple. That's possible. But it probably refers more so to the restoration of an heir of David to the throne of Israel. Jesus will be that heir. Verse 12 speaks of Israel's domination over her enemies. Verse 13, the cultivation of the land of Israel. Verse 14, the accumulation of Jewish exiles back to the land. In verse 15, the perpetuation of the nation Israel. God says to the wandering Jew, the Jew that has been sifted among the nations, I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. And guys, God is faithful to his promises. And there we have the book of Amos. I'm not ready to do Obadiah. So we'll have to wait till next time. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us in many different ways tonight, Lord. Help us to be able to assimilate what we've learned. Help us, Lord, not just to be hearers of the word, as important as that is. Help us also, Lord, to be doers of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.